Chapter 5 Where Have All the Dollars Gone? The Quantified Self Knows I have never known a man who was too idle to attend to his affairs and accounts, who did not get into difficulties. And he who habitually is in money difficulties very rarely keeps scrupulously honorable. And God forbid that this should ever be your fate. Charles Darwin, in letter to his son accompanying a check to pay off the young man's debts. People just don't want to have to be accountants. Aaron Patzer, founder of Mint.com Not long ago, a spendthrift sought help for his credit card debt from a team of researchers who called themselves neuroeconomists. They were monitoring the brains of people in the act of shopping or at least as close to that as you can get inside a functional MRI machine in a lab at Stanford University. The researchers measured activity in the brain's insular region as people contemplated spending money on gadgets, books, and assorted tchotchkes. This brain region ordinarily lights up when you see or hear something distasteful, and that's just what happened when the tightwads in the study saw the prices of the items. But when a typical spendthrift went shopping for the same items, the insula didn't register the same sort of disgust, not even when the brain considered spending a good chunk of hard-earned money on a color-changing mood clock. The one bit of hope for fiscal rectitude came in a separate experiment conducted at the request of this one particularly remorseful spendthrift. In the interest of full disclosure, we should note that this spendthrift was Tierney, before Baumeister began teaching him about self-control. Sure enough, the MRI test confirmed his spendthrift tendencies by revealing just how blasé his insula remained as he prepared to spend money for gizmos he didn't need. But then the researchers tried an intervention. They flashed an image of Tierney's most recent visa bill and got a reaction. At last, there was some sign of disgust. The researchers reported a little spot of insula activation when he contemplated the unpaid balance of $2,178.23. Apparently, he wasn't completely brain-dead when it came to money. That was reassuring. But how could this finding be put to use? How, short of having Stanford researchers follow him through a mall waving his visa bill, could his spendthrift be forced to contemplate the effects of his spending? The obvious solution was for him to set a budget and monitor his own spending just as Charles Darwin had advised his spendthrift son. But this was much easier said than done, until Aaron Patzer came along. Patzer was the kind of son Darwin would have liked, a fastidious bookkeeper who kept his checkbook balance as a teenager and then went on to spend his Sundays dutifully categorizing all his purchases with Quicken software. But at one point, while working for a software startup in Silicon Valley, he stopped tracking the spending, and when he sat down to catch up with his finances, he faced the prospect of categorizing hundreds of transactions. It occurred to him that there must be a better way to spend his time. Why couldn't a computer do this for him? Why couldn't he outsource this job? Wasn't this the kind of grunt work meant for silicon chips? The result of this was a company, Mint.com so successful that within two years it was sold for $170 million to Intuit, the maker of Quicken software. Mint's computers are now tracking the finances of nearly 6 million people, 
which makes it one of the largest exercises ever conducted into that second major step in self-control, monitoring behavior. It's also one of the more encouraging developments in the history of artificial intelligence. Like other companies offering to electronically monitor other aspects of your life, how much you weigh, how well you sleep, how much exercise you get, Mint.com is using computers for a profoundly humanistic endeavor. Ever since Frankenstein, science fiction writers have fretted about artificial intelligences that become aware of their own powers and turn against their human creators. Political writers worried about the consequences of widespread computer surveillance. Big Brother is watching. But now that computers are getting smarter, now that more and more of them are watching us, they're not becoming self-aware, at least not yet. And they're not seizing power from us. Instead, they're enhancing our powers by making us more self-aware. Self-awareness is a most peculiar trait among animals. Dogs will bark angrily at a mirror because they don't realize they're looking at themselves. And most other animals are similarly clueless when they're subjected to a formal procedure called the mirror test. First, the animal is dabbed with a spot of odorless dye. Then it's put in front of a mirror to contemplate this strange colored spot. The test is to see whether the animal touches the spot or indicates in some other way that it realizes the spot is on its own body such as turning the body to get a better view of the spot. Chimpanzees and the other apes can pass the test, and so can dolphins, elephants, and a few more. But most animals flunk. If they want to touch the spot, they reach for the mirror instead of their own body. Human infants also flunk this test, but by their second birthday, most of them can pass it. Even if these two-year-olds didn't notice the spot being applied, as soon as they see the mirror image, they reach up to touch their own forehead, often with a startled reaction. And that's just the beginning stage of self-awareness. Before long, this trait will turn into the curse of adolescence. Somehow, the carefree confidence of childhood is smothered by embarrassment and shame as teenagers become exquisitely sensitive to their own imperfections. They look in the mirror and ask the same question that psychologists had been studying for decades. Why? What's the point of self-awareness if it makes you feel miserable? I'm self-aware, therefore I... In the 1970s, social psychologists studying subjects in self-conscious situations began to understand why self-awareness developed in humans. The researchers who pioneered these procedures, Robert Wickland and Shelley Duvall, were initially mocked by colleagues who thought these studies quaint and not necessarily scientific. But the eventual results were too intriguing to ignore. When people were placed in front of a mirror or told that their actions were being filmed, they consistently changed their behavior. These self-conscious people worked harder at laboratory tasks. They gave more valid answers to questionnaires, meaning that their answers jived more closely with their actual behavior. They were more consistent in their actions, and their actions were also more consistent with their values. One pattern in particular stood out. A person might notice a table and think nothing more than, oh, there's a table. But the self was rarely noticed in such a neutral way. When people focused on themselves, they seemed to compare what they saw with some sort of idea of what they should be like. 
A person who looked in the mirror usually didn't stop at, oh, that's me. Rather, the person was more likely to think, my hair is a mess. Or, this shirt looks good on me. Or, I should remember to stand up straight. Or, inevitably, have I gained weight? Self-awareness always seemed to involve comparing the self to these ideas of what one might or should or could be. The two psychologists came up with a word for these ideas. Standards. Self-awareness involves a process of comparing yourself to standards. Initially, the assumption was that the standards were usually ideals, notions of what would constitute perfection. This led to the conclusion that self-awareness would nearly always be unpleasant, because the self is never perfect. Wickland and Duval maintained that view for several years, arguing that self-awareness is inherently unpleasant. It sounded plausible in some ways, particularly if you were trying to understand teenagers' angst, but it seemed odd from an evolutionary standpoint. Why would our ancestors have kept holding themselves to impossible standards? What was the evolutionary advantage of feeling bad? Moreover, the notion that self-awareness is inherently unpleasant didn't jive with the enjoyment derived by so many non-adolescents when thinking about themselves or looking in the mirror. Further research showed that people can make themselves feel good by comparing themselves to the average person we all like to think is inferior to ourselves. We also can often get pleasure by comparing our current selves to our past selves because we generally think we're improving with age, even if our bodies may be the worse for wear. Still, even if people mostly compare themselves to easy standards that make them feel good, that doesn't explain the evolution of human self-awareness. Nature doesn't really care whether you feel good. It selects for traits that improve survival and reproduction. What good is self-awareness for that? The best answer came from psychologists Charles Carver and Michael Shire, who arrived at a vital insight. Self-awareness evolved because it helps self-regulation. They had conducted their own experiments observing people sitting at a desk where there happened to be a mirror. The mirror seemed a minor accessory, not even important enough to mention to the people, yet it caused profound differences in all kinds of behavior. If the people could see themselves in the mirror, they were more likely to follow their own inner values instead of following someone else's orders. When instructed to deliver shocks to another person, the mirror made people more restrained and less aggressive than a control group that wasn't facing a mirror. A mirror prompted them to keep working harder at a task. When someone tried to bully them into changing their opinion about something, they were more likely to resist the bullying and stick to their opinion. In an experiment one Halloween, some of the trick-or-treaters who visited the home of a psychologist were asked their names, directed to a side room, and told to take one, and only one, piece of candy. The room had a table with several bowls of attractive candies, and the children could easily violate the instructions without any consequences, which many of them did when the mirror in the room was turned backward against the wall. But if the mirror was facing frontward and they could see themselves, they were much more likely to resist the temptation. Even when they were looking at themselves disguised by a Halloween costume, they felt self-conscious enough to do the right thing. The link between self-awareness and self-control was also demonstrated in experiments involving adults and alcohol. 
Researchers found that one of the chief effects of drinking was to reduce people's ability to monitor their own behavior. As drinkers' self-awareness declines, they lose self-control, so they get into more fights, smoke more, eat more, make more sexual blunders, and wake up the next day with many more regrets. One of the hardest parts of a hangover is the return of self-awareness, because that's when we resume that crucial task for a social animal, comparing our behavior with the standards set by ourselves and our neighbors. Keeping track is more than just knowing where things are. It means knowing where things are in relation to where they should be. Our ancestors lived in groups that rewarded members for living up to the common values, norms, and ideals. Therefore, people who could adjust their actions to meet those standards fared better than the ones who were oblivious to their own social faux pas. Changing personal behavior to meet standards requires willpower, but willpower without self-awareness is as useless as a cannon commanded by a blind man. That's why self-awareness evolved as an innate trait among our early ancestors on the savanna, and why it has kept developing recently in more treacherous social environs.